Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Elena Diaz, and this is a new episode of the IT Research Finder podcast. Remote work is on the rise, and even more amid the COVID-19 outbreak. So this is going to be our topic today. Haley Griffiths, head of public relations at Buffer, is here with us to talk about it. Buffer has recently published the, re the report, The 2020 State of Remote Work. This research is available on Buffer's website and on the IT Research Finder website. So hello and welcome, Haley. Hi, Elena. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here and thank you for your time today. Um, so let's get into the topic. What are the main benefits that remote wor workers mention of in, in, in the survey for, for your report? Yeah, there are several, but this trend that we see year over year is that flexibility is always key. So this year, over 32% of respondents said that the ability to have a flexible schedule is their biggest benefit that they see to remote work. And then the next biggest stat that we had was 26% said the flexibility to work from anywhere. So flexibility is really key when remote workers are looking at the benefits that they're seeing. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So, well, the report also shows that you know, nearly all, if not all, remote workers interviewed for, for the survey want to continue work, working remotely for the rest of their careers. Uh, but there is the report also found that a small minority of people don't recommend remote work. I mean, what are the reasons for this? Yeah, that's such a good question. This is something that we wanted to dig into as well, because it's such a different number. You know, we're seeing this huge percentage of people that want to keep remotely for the rest of their career. And then we're seeing, you know, two, three percent of people that don't recommend it or that don't want to keep recommending it or don't want to keep working remotely. So the trends that we saw, we compared a couple of different questions. And the trends that we saw is there are two things. The people who aren't recommending remote work are primarily working remote 100 percent of the time. So they aren't just going to an office one day a week. They're 100% of the time they're remote. And then the other key thing is that most of them are also on a team that is split between remote workers and people in the same office. So based on that and some of the numbers that we can see about the biggest struggles with remote work, which are often centered around communication and collaboration, I think what we've come to from this is the reason some people don't recommend remote work is just because they are not set up properly. Their office, there's like an office and there's remote workers, there might be communication struggles, they're constantly remote, but they might not be interacting with enough people from their office. So that's really the key number of people who said that they wouldn't want to keep working remote and that they don't recommend it are those people who are fully remote, but they don't work with an office that's fully remote. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, actually, our next question, my next question is about the challenges for remote workers. I mean, they mentioned, they tend to mention on the on the survey that lack of communication and collaboration as well as loneliness are well, the main challenges for them. Um, so the question is really why are companies struggling with this? I mean, considering that we have, you know, nowadays all the digital tools to increase cooperation between teams and, and employees. Yeah, I would almost say that we have as many tools as we do people who say that they're having problems with communications. Like it's kind of wild. There are so many options out there for communication tools, but really what we're seeing is sort of related to that last question 
is that people are working remotely while some of their company is still office-based. So maybe people are used to all communicating in the same conference room and they're used to running into each other in the hallway and they can't do that anymore if you have remote people. So people are struggling with that because you need to be able to communicate online. You can't have in-person conversations if part of your team is remote because they will just never catch up on that conversation. They'll never know what was said, right? So one of the things that we suggest for this is asynchronous communication, which is just communicating with people. Doesn't have to happen immediately, but just sending a message and then whatever the person's time zone is, later they can log on. But that's what we're mostly seeing is just that in this transition phase between people working primarily in an office to working primarily remote or part-time remote, there aren't principles and standards set up there between like, how are we going to communicate now? And you can't just let it happen naturally because then it might not be the optimal system. So there has to be a lot of care and thought put into this for it to succeed. Mm -hmm. We were talking about the beginning of the conversation of the increase of remote work caused by the coronavirus crisis. So we'd like to know if the remote work is here to stay. I mean, how do you see the evolution of remote work when this coronavirus crisis is over? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. We're in such a unique scenario. I think that there are a couple things that will happen. One is that ideally people will have set up better communication practices now that everyone has been remote and they'll set up ways for people to work remotely, that they do have that structure, they have that communication, they can all talk to each other. So that would be really great. The The other thing that's on my mind a little bit is that this is, this is such a different situation. This isn't remote work that we all know and love. This isn't just being able to work away from your teammates wherever you want to, whether it's at home or a coffee shop or at a library. This is very much you have to be at home, you have to be working, and there's a global pandemic going on. So something that we've been very mindful of is that this might give people a bad taste for remote work afterwards because it was such a stressful time in their lives. So hopefully what happens afterwards is that people are, companies are more flexible and they allow more remote work and that they have positive systems set up when it comes to communicating and collaborating and people don't need to be in meetings all day. But hopefully it does get more companies thinking of how can we set our our team up for success if they're working remotely and, and those positive practices just stay with the organization after the pandemic is over and after people are able to to travel again. So I am seeing a lot more remote work and a lot more companies saying that after this, they are going to want to stay remote. And I think that's very positive, um, but I, I think it'll be different for everyone. It depends what practices were set up during all of this. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's really interesting. We also hope that it remains like that in the future and that we can learn something from this as well. Um, and that's really all from us. So thank you very much, Hayley, for, for your time today and for this interesting conversation about remote work. I would like to remind everyone that the report is available on Buffer's website and on our website, itresearchfinder.com. So it's been a real pleasure and hope we, to speak with you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elena. It was great to get here. Research Finder is the leading platform for sourcing the best free IT research reports worldwide. Let us help you navigate the rapidly changing IT landscape with relevant research and reports from leading IT analysts and research houses worldwide. Hello everyone, this is a new episode of the IT Research Finder podcast. 
Artificial intelligence is going to be our topic today. And to give us her insights on this emerging technology, Christina Bosco-Glow is with us today. Christina is Senior Director of Research at Slash Data, and she's the author of the report, A State of the Developer Nation. Hello, Christina. Thanks for joining us here today. Hello, Elena. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to be here. Okay. Um, well, my first question is about the ethical aspects uh, around emerging technologies. Uh, I'd like to know, in general terms, what do developers think about ethics of uh, artificial intelligence? Yeah, so thank you. That was an interesting question, um, which we did ask in um, a Q418 survey, so a couple of surveys back. Um, and um, we have, it was good to see that overall, uh, developers agree they do have an obligation to safeguard ethics in AI. So it's not, not just a matter of agreeing that, of course, there should be some sort of code of ethical conduct within the AI world, but they, that they also play a part in that. Um, then, of course, um, within just vaguely asked about ethics, we asked about specific aspects of ethics. And there you could see that they had differing opinions. So for example, uh, user rights, they did have strong opinions. So the majority, the vast majority, I think uh, 72 or so percent, um, told us that they do take user rights very, very seriously. And they, they should not only ask for user consent uh, to collect data, but they should also go above and beyond legal requirements. So they they are, uh, and it's very encouraging to to see that developers are aware of their ethical responsibility um, in that aspect of um, AI. Um, then there are other things we ask them about, such as um, data protection, data security, ethical hacking. This is another, of course, area where they do have very strong feelings, and nearly all of them, 95%, agree that they do have, again, obligation to provide security and privacy. So that's all very reassuring. Um, of course, there are other questions that can be either more debatable, such as um, can AI be taught to behave as though moral and human friendly? And there, the response is split equally among, among those who agree uh, and those who either um, neither agree nor disagree and those who disagree. So they don't have any strong opinions um, yet, um, which is a bit surprising. I would expect that from the general population, but not uh, from a technical audience um, into MLAI, who they do understand what, what it can do. But it's really, that, that's also very um, sensitive to where they come from, the, the developers, their age, their, their background coding, their experiences, their region, so it's, it's not um, advisable to think that all developers are the same. We obviously have very um, different um, clusters and segments with, with differing opinions. So that's, that's why we have a split there. Um, yeah, another one, another example is algorithm data bias, another area where we have um, ethical issues because it's not really the data or the algorithms, so AI at the end of the day. Uh, that can be unethical. It's it's the humans behind it with the data sets that they provide, right? That that can, at the end of the day, um, be racists and so on. That kind of bias, a social sort of bias. Um, 
And uh, it's good to see there that most of them agree that they should do what they can to prevent such uh, unfair discrimination um, by given, you know, uh, biased assets. So, yeah, overall, it's an encouraging mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Um, I think overall, as you were saying, it's quite uh, reassuring. Um, I'd like to ask next about the gender gap in this specific industry, in the tech industry. Obviously, this is a sector that is still pretty much uh, dominated by men. Um, how would you define like the average profile of women in development? Um, I mean, is there any difference between men and women? And what's, what are those differences or what's the main difference? Mm-hmm. Yeah, first of all, it's uh, the dominance is still there. We have been tracking it survey after survey, it's steadily at around 90% male, um, 10% female. It only just now dropped slightly below uh, for men, so it's 89, but still practically 90. Um, yeah, so about women, there are differences. Um, so first of all, slightly different roles. Women can be found more than men in roles um, that are more creative, or related to marketing mm-hmm. um, and sales. So UX designer, um, data business analyst, uh, even tech product manager, but not tech lead, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, well, all the more specialized um, roles such as architect and system admin and so on, um, remain the uh, realm of um, men uh, by far. Um, Another difference, which is interesting, is uh, the size of the companies in which they work. So women um, tend to work in large organizations, which means they are not so much part of the startup ecosystem yet. So that's something that the men do still. Um, So and and again, that's related to role also. I mean, um, usually have roles such as um, marketing or product manager and so on um, in, in larger rather than large organizations so that these go kind of hand in hand. Now the good news is uh, there's another difference in the profile of, of women uh, developers. They are younger um, on average than men uh, because uh, basically the new generation is less biased mm-hmm. um, and uh, therefore we see many young women uh, coming boldly going where <laughs> the other women didn't go in the past. Um, so we have, um, yeah, slightly younger on average um, as compared to, to men. Now, in terms of what they do compared to men, um, yes, there is some bias there that is linked to age. So they're more into the more emerging sectors, um, such as ARVR or the, let's say, I don't want to say playful, but easier to get into sectors mm-hmm. just as games and even web and so on but they're not uh, as much into backend for example so the most um, corporate and perhaps specialized sectors um, and uh, lastly with respect to industries uh, they are found to be working again in, in uh, industries where technology um, penetrated recently well, relatively recently, such as uh, education, um, academia, academia, marketing, advertising services, again, that also binds with the roles that they can have and so on. So there is a difference in uh, profile. 
but uh, what what I would keep out of that is that uh, young women seem to be getting into the sector far more now than they did before, which is uh, good news to me. Sure, it is. Um, so yes, yeah, good to hear that as well. It's also encouraging. I have a more technical question now. Um, the report explains that developers are not developing true native apps at the moment. What or how would you define cloud native and why is it important? So we um, define cloud native as uh, apps that are using orchestration engines instead of just porting, um, let's say, a monolith app to a container. Um, if you if you do that, you're really not developing natively in the cloud. Um, so uh, an analogy there would be when developers try to port desktop apps to mobile in the early days of mobile, that didn't, didn't go very well because they were not designed and built uh, with the um, um, capabilities of, of this platform. So it's a, it's a similar thing. So um, to, to leverage um, all the um, capabilities that you can get, uh, it's best to start from scratch, let's say, and go native. Uh, it, it doesn't, cannot work otherwise. Thank you for that. I'd like to know now about the Agile methodology. Could you share with us your views on, on this? Um, what are the specific implementations of Agile dominating the software industry? Yeah, right. So, um, so obviously, uh, Agile has been um, gradually taking over the software project planning world. Um, because the traditional waterfall, it's, it's uh, biggest um, um, limitation was that um, it cannot work very well in projects where the goals are not clear from the beginning and where requirements change continuously. And if you've spoken to developers, you see that this is typically the case um, in software projects, uh, especially in the startup world. So. Um, when we started seeing the boom of startups who in the beginning most of them you know they have some vague, vague idea but that really is uh, shaped and molded as they go um, they, they cannot really use waterfall for that um, therefore that's why um, it has been growing it's around 60 percent of developers that say that that follow um, agile um, now as to what to do exactly, which methodologies, um, we found uh, Scrum to be the, um, the most popular still. It was a thing that was conceived in, in the 90s sometime. Um, so about 40% of developers use Scrum. Um, and it's a framework that puts the core principles of Agile into practice, really. So it enables some um, dev teams to break down large and complex projects into a series of smaller iterations, which we call sprints. Um, and so, you know, speed up the process and, and improve quality, really. Um, so efficiency at the end of the day. And then, so that's that's the most popular uh, out of Agile. Um, then we have, in terms of a single other methodology under this umbrella, we have Kanban. Uh, it's significantly lower, it's around 20%. Um, but, and and it's, it shares the principles of um, the, the core principles of, of Scrum as well. Um, but it's um, it's not constrained by fixed length, uh, length limitations. Um, so um, it's it's a continuous delivery to customers instead. 
Um, so that's popular and um, equally popular is the is a hybrid of agile waterfall uh, methodologies, which is I think the most important here to note is because this is really um, an indication that a lot of um, teams are in transition. They cannot really trust or they show that they do not want to yet trust completely into Agile. And also Agile is also the, um, uh, we found, uh, used most by the more um, uh, experienced developers. So it takes some sort of experience to be Agile. You cannot, uh, when, when you do not have the experience, you just want to have things, have more structure, let's say. Um, so we see models that are um, hybrid have also been used by some like uh, 20%. Um, so they they mix some sort of less controversial agile techniques with the uh, traditional waterfall method that, that they know. Um, and uh, also the other thing to note is that it's not just a methodology that they follow, is that they, they use an average more than two, 2.7 actually, um, so multiple methodologies, uh, with Scrum being the most frequently co-used along with, with others. So, yeah, that's what it looks like in the global world. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you for such an in-depth uh, reply on, on this specific topic. Um, we wouldn't like to finish this conversation without asking about the new edition of this paper that is about to be released. Uh, could you share with us the main developments over the last year? Sure, yeah. So it's just published. It's a photo of the press, uh, really. It's our 18th. Uh, developer economics um, um, survey that uh, was used to um, for all the findings in that report. The survey was was uh, fielded between November 19 to February 2020. We had more than 17,000 developers from 159 countries uh, responded, and um, we focus on a number of things. So in our service, we cover what we'd like to call the full view of the developer activity from what to do, what what emerging um, technologies they see coming um, and what they use currently, how happy they are with what they're using, but also their experiences, their motivations, um, their business models, their industries and so on. So out of those, we picked six uh, major themes this time, which we discussed in the report. Um, one is a um, thing that we always track that has to do with uh, programming language communities where we just uh, find that uh, JavaScript remains the most popular programming language uh, with more than 12 million developers uh, using it. Uh, Python um, continues to grow and added another 2.2 million uh, to its uh, 2018 numbers and surpassed uh, Java actually. And uh, Kotlin is the fastest growing language community uh, and it nearly doubled its size in the past two years. So these are the key findings in the language, programming language um, uh, area. Uh, now, we also do quite a lot of research on open source and um, we look at it from different angles, really both of what developers want and uh, also uh, what sort of support they expect uh, from vendors out there. So in this particular report, uh, we um, discuss the contribution the developers make to open source, and we find that three out of five developers actually contribute to open source software. And they are most motivated to contribute um, 
in order to improve their own coding skills. So re really um, nearly 30% said so. Uh, or otherwise because they believe in the benefits of open source in general. That's another 26%. Um, so that was interesting to see in my view. Um, and also um, they almost half of open source contributors expect companies to do their bit, right? To support and contribute to open source communities. Um, so this is interesting, this is growing and they expect um, vendors to step in uh, and do their part, which will be very interesting to see in the next uh, few uh, months or the upcoming year. Now we also look uh, into DevOps because it's uh, growing uh, as a um, culture, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, so in this particular report, we just um, discussed uh, the profile of uh, those who are using DevOps. Um, of course, we're also, uh, we track all emerging technologies every single time to take the pulse, let's say, of the present and the future. Um, so DevOps um, is one of the most popular, um, not emerging, but uh, trends, trendy, let's say. Uh, technology. So um, most developers, around 60%, are engaged currently with DevOps. Um, uh, by engaged, we mean they're either using it or um, learning about it or interested in it. Okay. And 27 are in fact currently working with projects on projects involving DevOps. Um, and so Doing some profiling there, we find found that developers using uh, continuous integration deployment tools are 20 percentage points more likely to be professionals, obviously, and 58 percent of developers uh, using those tools work for firms with more than 10 people involved in software development. So therefore, it has not yet gone down to the level of the smaller teams. Uh, another topic we look into is uh, machine learning uh, development. So we specifically also ask, so there's a lot of buzz obviously about machine learning in the past few years and where it is being used um, so there's a lot of um, there, there are many numbers as to how many developers there are okay fine but what are they doing exactly that's also being discussed but where do they deploy their code where is their code running at the end of the day so that's the topic we are discussing um, and we found that although amateurs are of course, less likely to leverage cloud computing infrastructures. Um, they are as likely as professionals to run their code on hardware other than CPUs. Um, so I think that will be interesting to all of those working on um, uh, all the hardware architectures um, needed to support ML projects. Um, and we also found that um, those who are working with big data, so all the really let's say interesting stuff, not the rest is uninteresting, but all the ones that get the, the hype, let's say, lately. So um, big data and uh, deep learning frameworks uh, and projects, they're more likely to deploy their code on hybrid and multi-clouds, right? So they're not going local. Um, obviously, so ML developers involved in data ingestion are also more likely to run on private clouds instead and on-premise service. So there's a difference on what they're doing in terms of where they deploy their code at the end of the day. We're also looking into AR and VR, so augmented virtual reality. Uh, the very interesting thing here is that this is a, a very uh, nice example of a technology that is shifting from the specialists to 
the um, um, the simple, let's say, everyday, not everyday, but non non developers, anyways. So it's been democratized, as we say. So what we're looking at in this report is how um, this mix is is turning out. So how many developers versus non developers we have in the field, given that you don't now have to have any skills uh, to work on ARVR. Um, and in the majority, anyways, as we observe in any emerging sectors, they are um, hobbyists uh, with a diverse set of interests and skills. Um, and the majority also um, of those hobbyists are, in fact, professionals in something else. So developers who are trying their hand in uh, AR and VR. Um, and only 22% of non-developers are learning how to go to exactly because they have other tools to use. Um, and those who do, uh, they are trying Java, C++, and C Sharp. Um, and last but not least, we're discussing emerging technologies. As I said, uh, the key from there is DevOps, uh, with the, what I just uh, mentioned, that uh, we have nearly 6% now uh, in rising uh, developers engaged with the DevOps. And the other interesting things about Fog Edge computing, if I were to pick just one more, uh, because FogEdge uh, has seen one of the largest increases in engagement adoption in the previous 12 months. So, yeah, these are the key insights out of our latest report. Okay, well, thank you so much for giving us so much information about uh, your most recent um, version of this report. Um, and that's really everything from us. So thank you very much for your time, Christina, for sharing your insights on this exciting field. Um, just a reminder to all our users that the report, State of the Developer Nation, is available on Slash Data and on itresearchfinder.com. Thank you again, Christina. Thank you, Elena. It was a pleasure being here. Thank okay. you.